I'm there with him, but he can't see me. His sister, my aunt, is there too. They're both so young. I'm kind of flickering, my turtleneck in the body underneath it transparent. You could put a hand through me, and my father almost does as he runs from one room to the other. A few toys that I remember shipping off to the auction house are scattered on the floor, pristine as they were then and as they were when he died. We're like that way, keeping things nice. I know where I get it from, but then I always knew. This must be the house in Havertown, the one I never saw in person, or maybe we drove past once and I just forgot. I try to crane my neck to see how the house sits on the property. Is there a round slope down to the sidewalk? Is there a sidewalk at all? I have smooth brain when it comes to places I've walked. I mean, we all must, right? Think of all the sidewalks and all the cities and all the places that you've walked. The whole time, my brain is receiving potentially life, or at least shoe-saving information. Wet leaves, slow walker, signpost, puddle, gum, worse, dodging and weaving all the way from point A to point B. And if point B involves a boozy eggnog... <laughs> Well, I won't remember that either, and I will be spending the night. I'm shaken out of my sidewalk thoughts by a sister's voice. She looks the same as she does now, same features, just smaller, with a ribbon in her hair and a blue and white dress. Dad's in dark gray trousers showing wear at the knees. I can see they've been mended on the pocket, maybe torn on a branch. They're making up a game, something to do, and she's explaining that, oh no, it can't be that way. And Dad's offering an alternative way to play, saying, Maybe it's this. And that's when my aunt reaches for the crystal doorknob into the other room, going to leave on her own, maybe get a book. But as her hand touches the doorknob, Dad pleads, No, don't. You'll disturb May and O. And to her question, Who's that? He answers, The couple that lives in the doorknob. Oh, darling, I can't believe this door is stuck again. What are we going to do? Well, May, it looks like we've got ourselves a good old-fashioned door dilemma. Oh, isn't that just swell? Our door decides to take a vacation from opening and closing. It's like it heard about all those fancy automatic doors they're installing downtown and got jealous. Oh, sure. Our door is just trying to keep up with the Joneses. Come on, you good-for-nothing piece of wood! Open sesame! You know, in the good old days, a door knew its place. It opened when you wanted to go out and closed when you wanted privacy. Maybe our door's just protesting. Wants more recognition. Oh, I can see the headlines now. Local door demands equality in household chores. <laughs> <laughs> May, I think we need to use a little finesse. Finesse? You mean like when you tried to fix the sink and flooded the entire kitchen? That was just a small plumbing disagreement. What if we grease it up a bit? A little zappa oil always does the trick. Good thinking, May. I'll go get the can. Now listen here, Dor. We've been through a lot together. Don't you want to let us out for a night on the town? There you go, Dor. A little lubrication to make everything smooth again. Oh, look at that. Our door is back in action. Just needed a little coaxing. Like dealing with a stubborn mule. <laughs> well, dear, at least our mule of a door didn't kick us out of the house. <laughs> <laughs>
Whenever my father and his sister would get together when they were adults for family meals at their parents' house, a different house from this one where May and O lived in the doorknob, talk would eventually come around to shared core memories. A surprise in a closet, a lesson in what not to do with a car, a neighbor who blew up a basement with his home chemistry set. But the thing that lodged in my noggin like a pill too large, scraping itself into the sides of your throat so that you feel it days later, was always the story of May and O'Donis. And I never knew or they never told me anything else about May and O other than they resided in the doorknob. I have no idea what they looked like, what they sounded like, how they got there. Are there people in all doorknobs or just the glass ones? What happened to May and O when my dad and his family moved away? Did they leave May and O to go on in that house, abandoning them to whatever fate or remodel awaited them? Was the doorknob pried loose, placed in a box, and was I supposed to keep that box? Did I, or did it get tossed? Did it get auctioned off, too, like the old perfect toys and the model ships and the books full of pennies meticulously positioned and kept all those years? Were May and O still out there, in a hardware store somewhere, in a bin with other doorknobs, waiting to be reused and reclaimed? I worry about them, I guess, which is weird, because they don't exist. Figments of an overactive imagination on a nothing-to-do kind of day. On the spectrum of imaginary friends invented by young boys, how unusual is it to invent a happily married childless couple that goes on about their day enjoying light through the glass of a doorknob? You can't take them with you on trips. They're not really cuddly or comforting on stormy nights when the lightning flashes and you count the seconds until the boom of thunder to try and guess how far away the storm is or how close... I'm back in that room with the both of them, back to that moment that May and O were conjured into existence. They're laughing and taking turns, pressing their eyes to the glass, trying to get close enough to see what the tiny couple is doing. Each comes up with a more elaborate little chore that May asks O to do, and O's getting frustrated. Even though they live in a door fixture, they have trouble with their own doors, always sticking in the humidity, always drafty in the winter. The going back and forth between them, my dad pointing out little details that give it life and his sister going right along with it, both building a world that mimics their own but in its own way is bigger. It's not just a home for two people but a universe, infinitely expanding outward in all directions. You just have to put your eye in the right place to see it. I sometimes wonder what they really saw, why dad chose that doorknob. Did he see his own reflection in there, wobbly and misshapen, the facets of the glass acting like a miniature funhouse mirror? Was his face the way it was in the fisheye lens photos he loved taking years later? I don't have access to that memory, even from the outside. I'd always meant to ask, was he sitting near the door one day and saw the two distorted forms of his parents as they reached for the knob, pulled taller and leaner than they already were, and did that give Dad the sense that there were people reaching back from the inside? When not standing there among them, I consider all the possibilities, all the reasons, try to put some logic to it, marry what I know now of my father and the way his mind worked, and all I come up with is conjecture, probably taking it all a step too far. Were the names so perfect, so well-placed in their era, names meant to be short like theirs, Dale and Dot, May and O. Or was it an echo of the words they had just spoken to each other seconds before, an inadvertent capture of their still-forming but distinct personalities? Oh, no, and 
Maybe I consider how well it all works in hindsight for my father to have manifest imaginary friends that were contained within an architectural feature, the way he so often disappeared into the work of building, getting especially lost in the details of a home. He would explain to me years later about his crippling social anxiety, his long swings through deeply depressive states. And while the impetus for May and O might have been joyful and silly, a sort of memory to be shared over a meatloaf platter while wearing a borrowed light mustard and vibrant rust sport coat from the lost and found closet of the country club in the senior living community where my grandparents lived, I can't help but feel it as also being an attempt to keep the darkness away. A reach for a friend. Let's keep playing. Don't leave me alone with thoughts. There's something we can both focus on that is very small, and we spend time just here making each other laugh. And so it would be that my dad and his sister would take turns peering into the world of May and O'Donis, the couple that lived in the doorknob. There's so many ways that our inner lives emerge into the sunlight. Even the act of hiding something can be revealing. An action, an attempt to conceal. A bored but imaginative kid in the 1950s might just be coming up with a fanciful idea, but it may also speak to some other truth. There's so much to consider in a glass doorknob. A doorknob that simultaneously functions as it should, opening or closing one space from the next. Also holding wonder within, reflecting refracting, and when the sun hits at the right angle, casting hundreds of tiny rainbows all around the room. Things, big things and small things, inside other things. What happens when those things are held up to the light? What happens when we examine them closely? And how do we see differently after staring so intently at an object or feeling or part of ourself that we had been closed off from? If you use your eyes to gaze into the eyes of my owl necklace, my amulet, you may notice a stirring, a subtle pulsing. What you're seeing is no defect or trick of the jeweler's hands, no. What you're seeing are stars. And if you let your eyes go cross like trying to find the Statue of Liberty in one of those magic eye posters from the 90s, you'll see that among those stars is a circular black pool a whirling portal that if you let your mind enter it and go through it, well, you'll find yourself here with me in a place we call the Deep Night. Hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, your host for this next journey into things hiding other things we call the deep night. We come to you tonight as we always do, except on the rare occasions where I forget to mention it, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And should I ever forget again, just know in your hearts that I am always here in the filth and the fury of the mighty Gowanee. 
the Gowanus Canal, a thing which holds many things I never want to find out about or press my face close to. The other night, as is tradition, a group of local workers tried to install one of those seasonal light-up snowflakes, you know, the one strung up from one telephone pole to the other. Well, as soon as the men and women descended from their extension ladders and cherry-pickers to admire their work, the snowflake erupted in toxic flame, half-melting, half-consumed by its own noxious cloud with the chemical symbol of Y-U-C-K. I love this time of year. I love all times of year. One summer, a group of us, my friends and I, all went to one of the local amusement parks. We got those little keyhole photo souvenirs, which if you held it up to the light and looked into it with one eye, the other locked in a tight squint, the image would be illuminated, almost three-dimensional in appearance. And there everyone was, the friend who annoyed you, the one you had a crush on, the one who years later would drop everything to be at your side, and one you never heard from again, a person who seemingly vanished almost immediately after that photo was taken. I found a few of those keyhole souvenir photos in the drawers and dressers of my father's house. Part of the process of clearing things out meant touching, examining, finding everything he ever owned. All the things he kept, all the things he kept only for me to find. Did he know that I would find them? Did he want for me to hold on to them forever? What stories were there? What secrets were held? And how many were lost to time, vanishing after a photo was taken? Some of the keyhole photos were of his parents on a beach vacation. Others were of scenes without people, just moments from time spent somewhere else. And now it had lost its meaning, even if it still vibrated with the energy of someone's life, whatever that vibrational frequency was, it was unfamiliar to me and inaccessible. And if that was the case, I had to let it go. But still, I pressed my eye to that small plastic circle and with one eye squinting against the light, tried to focus on the faces that were looking back at me. My father loved secret compartments, false bottoms, and puzzle boxes. He hid many things, including a sizable amount of cash inside things that unless you knew him were of him you would not think to open and certainly would not expect to find bundles of cash wrapped in disintegrating rubber bands. I spent months in that house, surrounded by boxes, holding things up, opening them up, deciding whether or not to keep it or toss it, unpacking each item's emotional life the faint whispers of an experience embedded into the object itself, giving it a dim aura of importance. I tried and didn't always succeed, trying to follow the threads through friendships, acquaintances, and family members, depicted in yards and rooms and at parties that were not places I ever went to. I would easily get sucked into the process of trying to reconstruct the entirety of a life that existed beyond me as it matched or diverged from the stories I knew well the ones repeated over and over again, stories I wish I paid better attention to at the time. How old was he there? How old was I? What was I doing at the age he was scraping the stucco or planting that tree or covering bottles with stained glass or digging out a basement bucket by bucket? I attempt to place myself in his world before my time, trying to colorize this black and white world. Houses, especially old ones, have, I have learned... Too many spaces for the hiding of things. Attics and cupboards, basements and trunks. Upstairs, downstairs, behind stairs and under them. 
Given his love of secret places, I also had to check the bases of clocks, the lining of suits, the drawers, but also the space at the back of the drawers, old coffee cans full of nails, dusty paper bags, old crocks and cookie jars. I had to check it all. And if I found something, I had to sit with it. At a certain point, you become numb. At a certain point, it's just too much stuff, and everything is shaking with stories unheard. You want to press your face close and see and listen and reconstruct and fill in the blanks, but you can't because you're just one person. I'm one person. And so like living in New York, you get to the point where you don't hear the sirens and the trucks or the honking anymore, and you try to get through another day so you can go get coffee in the morning and start all over, building your own life, making your own stories. For me, all things are connected. All made from the same basic building blocks, all enduring on a planet that is itself a living entity, hurtling through space towards who knows what, or more frighteningly, away from who knows what. And whatever we came in contact with in our short lives etches into us, like the rings of a tree or the layers of ice. Everything that has gone on before is stored in our being and in the material of all things. I contend that all objects carry this universal memory. A long wooden table knows that once it was a pine tree standing on the edge of a clearing, and the glass of a light bulb knows it was once a handful of sand rolling over itself, carried by the wind across the shores of an ancient ocean. My wife Galinda thinks most old things are haunted, having been imbued with too much life from their previous owners. She won't even go in an antique store. Too many ghosts, she says, as we pull instead into the West Elm outlet in Ohio. Not every box I opened over those many months contained a part of life I wanted to remember. Not all of them held something I was ever expecting to see. One time I opened a very nice little compact box with overlapping swirls of mint green and silver pearlescent ink covering its front, and it was filled to the lid with a coil of flaxen human hair. I knew right away it had belonged to my mother, maybe from the time she cut her ponytail after the wedding, but before having me. The long blonde hair that I knew my dad loved. The hair she has in pictures where she's wearing miniskirts and talking to a friend as they make dinner in a kitchen somewhere I don't recognize. College era, Mom. Sixties, Mom. She never grew her hair that long again. It was never that light in color for as long as I knew her. Or maybe it was just once, when she wore a short wig during her chemo. It was light, and you could tell it wasn't real because of the sheen on the strands. It caught too much reflection to be real, like it was borrowed from a wax figure at the museum. In that moment, she could have picked any kind of hair at almost any shade. She picked the one that most closely resembled her own when she was young, independent, in love. I knew it was her hair, her old real hair in that box, and knowing how complicated the relationship was to that hair, when it was there, when it wasn't, how it changed, why it changed, I knew why my dad had saved it. Some things he tossed, some secrets I'll never know, some died with him. But the things he was attached to he kept, or things he thought I should have. So now I have this box that was inside another box, full of her things that he thought I should keep, or that he wanted me to know that he kept. You see how tricky this can all be, when one is sorting through the pieces of someone else's existence, holding their stuff up to the light, peering in, imagining an existence that is or is not there, that may just be a reflection of your own needs. 
The box of hair was not the only bodily-related thing I found in those locked attic trunks and deep dresser drawers. There were stacks of X-rays. It would not be an exaggeration to say hundreds of them, spanning a period of more than twenty years, scans of the neck of the spine, so many spines, mostly spines, but a few other hands and wrists and knees, an eerie glowing skeleton emerging from the dark, another thing to hold up to the light and try and understand what has been captured, another look at the essence of a life hidden from normal view, each moving past the muscles and the flesh and the fat to show us the organs and physical structures holding it all in place each thick plastic film showing the weak spots and failures, discs bulging, bones pressured near breaking, crumbling and contorted from years of labor, douses of defoliant during wartime. Here is the evidence, a glimpse at the pain that churns beneath the shape we know as our parents. That outline you learn to recognize from across the supermarket or from the deep end of the swimming pool when it's time for camp pickup. The shape you know to run to at the airport after being away for too long. That outline is there on the x-rays, as if your parents have been lit from behind by an electric blue light, like a bug zapper on a porch or a neon sign for ice. I didn't save any of the x-rays. Each one seems to drip with negative energies. While you can see what is happening and recognize parts in a general sort of way, it speaks in a foreign language one known to doctors and clinicians, an arcane map that would point to treatment that I know now would never really work, never really take away any of the pain. Sometimes, most of the time, medical intervention only made things worse for them. I know how that story goes. So while it's revealing, it also leaves no room for joy, no room for discovery in any real sense that isn't depressing. To look at those x-rays is to be reminded of diagnoses and hospital stays and surgeries and physical therapy appointments and pills. So many pills. Some things can stay hidden inside other things. I was once a thing inside another thing. It was a seasonal job and I loved it. And it brought me joy. And it brought my mother joy, too, and it required me holding my eye very close to a small circle, not unlike those keyhole souvenir photos, looking out into the light and spending hours trying to understand people's lives. The phone would ring. I'd pick up and the mall manager on the other end would let me know that there'd been a cancellation. She was sorry it was such short notice, but could I be there in a half hour to cover a shift? I could make it there in 12 minutes if I didn't get stuck at the light on Ship Road. I love that job. I love that she called me. I was a first call bear. I imagined she had a well-positioned post-it tacked to the cork wall of her workstation with my name and number written on it, surrounded by happy ballpoint stars and exclamation points. When I tell people I was a talking bear at the local shopping mall, they always imagine me walking around the food court in a theme park-style bear costume, big head mesh eyes, a handler who comes and gets me every half hour to ensure I don't dehydrate. This was not that. As soon as I'd get into work, I'd do a walk around to the front of the bear area to see what the conditions were. A lot of kids on the carpet steps meant that I'd have to wait a little bit before going in. A low moment, perhaps, while they were distracted. Usually the bear's eyes were closed, which meant that I could slip into character without much trouble. But if two shifts overlapped, it meant that I was in for questions about why the bear's voice and sometimes our names were different. 
I was the only one of us who stuck to Teddy Bear over the less original options of Big Ball Bear or Santa Bear, the latter of which granted expectations that were impossible to live up to. Just wait for the first kid to leave a letter for Santa Bear with his gift list. Now what are you going to do? Of course, one deadbeat would simply give his name as Bear. I know he worked the rest of the year at the knife-sharpening cart, one of those little vendors that occupied the middle territory of the mall, not really a shop, not really the back of someone's truck, bear. It was offensive. Getting into the operator's box required stealth and precision, keen to make sure no one noticed so that the spell would not be broken and everyone would assume that this ten-foot mechanical bear display was talking all on its own. I would throw one leg over the low red fence, then with extreme focus, bring the other leg into the snow pit and head to my post, as if sneaking past armed guards in a seemingly defunct underground missile silo that was also the secret lair of a criminal mastermind, I would proceed down a narrow pathway that led directly to the back door of what, to the common mall visitor, appeared to be a giant present. I'd pull the metal door handle swiftly, always getting the bottom of the door stuck in a bunching heap of artificial snow, and then tugging it, creaking back to its closed position, throw the hook into the eye latch, and exhale. A successful entry. My day could begin. The box was always disturbingly warm, lit only by a small clip lamp, the clip part of which grew sticky over time from having been taped and retaped in order to hold its upright position. The dimensions were four by four feet square. It was eight feet high, enough to stand, but not much else. It was like being trapped in a wooden elevator or coffin. Like if I died doing the bear and I lived in that part of Africa where they make the coffins in various shapes according to the deceased person's profession, they'd just remake the same box. They'd say, what did that person do who was buried in the big box painted red to look like a present? Oh, he was a talking bear at the mall. You mean he walked around in a bear costume? No, there was a box he was in, and then there was a big robot bear next to him. There were only three rules to successful bear employment. One, no swearing. Two, no playing your own music on the cassette deck. And three, don't let the kids throw the fake snow everywhere. You could almost feel rule number three coming up in the all-staff meeting where they introduced the concept of the holiday bear. I'm sure Custodial had some strong opinions about how much fake snow was going to be a part of this attraction. They already had trouble with too many of those tiny pink Baskin-Robbins tasting spoons in the planters on the second floor. This had the potential to break them. But as long as whoever was in the bear could be sure to convey and enforce this last rule, something almost impossible to do, as it would turn out, they'd be okay with it. At the close of every night, I'd do my best to tidy up, putting mounds of glittery plastic flakes back on the other side of the fence, just out of reach of small arms. I started every set the same way. I'd let out a big yawn, and then I moved the knob to the right and then to the left to make the bear's head move from side to side, as if waking from a magnificent dream. I flicked the two other switches on the control box in tandem so that his big furry lids opened, closed, then sprung open again. Kids' faces would light up. Hello, everybody. Little girl in the pink jacket, what's your name? If there weren't any kids and there was just some tired dad nursing a McDonald's coffee sitting there, I could surprise him and ask him about his drink. Or by reading the store name on the bag, ask him what he had just gotten at Wilson's Leather. Usually the ability of the bear to correctly identify what someone was wearing was enough to bring them in. Some shoppers would still just walk away. They didn't want any part of it. That's kind of how I feel now when I see a street performer or a person outside of Trader Joe's asking me if I have a second to help the environment. 
The best of all situations, of course, was if I actually knew the person. And if it was the girl with dark hair who everyone loved since middle school, the one who worked at the deli at the cluster of stores across the highway, she I could say hello to, and blushing, she'd ask me how I knew her name, and then I would stammer and try to be a little coy, but eventually she'd figure it out at school the next day or some other time. And then she never really came around to that part of the mall after that. The entire robotic bear contraption itself was impressive. It was a towering beast, covered in a dense layer of fur the color of carpet that you buy so that you don't see the dirt. Rather than aiming for a natural bear look, this ten-foot bear had the soft generic features of a stuffed animal you would win at a carnival. It wore a scarf and a red hat trimmed in white fur, though for reasons I cannot explain, fur on fur always makes me squeamish. The bear was seated on top of an appropriately humongous artificial tree stump. The rounded teddy bear legs were spread to the stump's edges, an engineering necessity perhaps to disperse its weight. Once installed, an oversensitive mall CEO might have noticed that greeting children with a splayed bear crotch might invite letters from parents so a blanket of cottony snow was draped over the legs, stopping just short of appearing to be giant teddy bear briefs. My mother had gotten me the gig. The big stump was installed over what had previously been a cluster of high-energy fountains. Fountains that were tuned to shoot straight into the sky and fall right back down in the loudest way possible. A wall of wet static. She worked at a jewelry store that was situated directly across from that array of roaring plumes. On sick days, I would go in with her and read comics in the tiny back room with the inventory of silver earrings and beaded necklaces all in baggies. I'd hear her chatting up a customer, loudly declaring that she wished there was something she could do, and yes, it did make talking to people impossible. It certainly would make her job easier if they just ripped them out altogether. Well, I imagine she was pretty excited when some mall back office type was sent around to all the stores informing managers about the mall's new seasonal display, one that would require disconnecting the fountains for, ah, uh, two months. I'm sure she probably said something along the lines of, well, about time you got rid of those horrible things, but her aggression was thankfully lessened by the possibility that she could find me a job. They were giving preference to existing mall employees, but if she knew anyone, they should give the main office a call. The mouth of the bear was voice-sensitive in that its lower jaw bounced in time with whatever sounds came through it. In the box, there was a small rough-edged, could-have-made-it-in-seventh-grade woodshop shelf that was large enough to hold with no room to spare, the main control box with the eye and head switches, a microphone, a mic stand, and a single can of soda. Technically, drinks were discouraged anywhere near the control box, but once that tiny door of the box was latched, who was going to know? A pair of those flimsy headphones hung on a nail above the shelf. The headphones were of the quality you buy when you have to replace the good ones on your Walkman, the ones that you left on the bus on the ski clubs once a year trip to Blue Mountain. They had those thin wheels of red or black foam that covered the parts that touched your ears. It tore every time you put them on or off. They were connected to a wire that snaked outside of the box, somewhere under the snow, along the stump, and right into the receiving end of a small beige baby monitor. A cheap baby monitor in 1990 is exactly the same as a cheap baby monitor today. You might be able to hear a baby's cry, but the hushed Christmas wishes from a shy six-year-old with a missing tooth, not so much. 
to accomplish this impossible task, I had to rely on focused, active listening and the fine art of toddler lip-reading. I could only see what was happening through a single three-inch hole cut into the front of the box. It was concealed from the audience by its position at the center of a wreath and by a thin layer of wire mesh painted gold to match its I'm-just-a-Christmas-package camouflage. With my eye pressed against it, I could strain to see who was talking and who was shouting something from the back of the steps. Some people would stand just out of my sight line, which was frustrating. And by the time I got a break between crowds of kids, I had a deep impression of the grid from the mesh pushed into my cheek. That eye hole was also the only source of air for the box, so when my eye wasn't jammed up against it, my nose was. Under the shelf of the control box was a cassette player. It had two slots, but there was only ever one tape left in the box, at all times, Raffi's Christmas album. Playing music through this affected the bear's mouth movements the same way the microphone did, his great lower mandible opening and closing in time with the music. It did not discriminate, however, between voice, sleigh bells, or drums, which gave the bear the look of someone who had just gone a bit batty, just blah, blah, blahing along to the guitar intro of One Christmas Morning, it became a source of pride for me that only once, a particularly grueling nine-hour stretch when someone failed to show, did I resort to popping in that lame tape so that I could use the facilities and grab some waffle fries before heading back in for more. Raffi, to me, was weakness. My voice had changed in the sixth grade. Clearly, the women of southeastern Pennsylvania thought I sounded older than fifteen. They were single, they were at the mall, and they were shamelessly flirting with who they must have thought was a much older man, a man who had to take a job in a box for hours on end to make ends meet, but still. It always started off kind of fun, thrilling even, especially if my mom was not working that night. I could throw in some bear-specific wordplay. They'd try to get at the truth of the matter by asking whether the bear lived in a cave nearby. Was the bear married? They didn't see a ring. But the question I really dreaded was, when does the bear get off work? That was usually from a fellow mall employee, a staffer at Fashion Bug or Claire's Boutique, feeling a bit randy after hours. I prayed it wasn't a piercing pagoda girl. Those girls were tough, talented, no doubt, but firm. Interested bear suitors would ask about my exit time, but scarier, they'd also wait. At some point, the mall had to close, and at some point I had to leave the box. I must have checked those switches a hundred times just to delay having to leave. I'd slowly push the door open into the inevitable snag of a fake snowdrift and make my way for the mall exit. Sometimes our moment together would be quiet, a kind of mutual shame silence, sometimes laughter. Often the women weren't alone, a girlfriend or colleague with them giggling, covering their mouths. Maybe we try to say hello or make light conversation. It wasn't like anything had really happened, but when suddenly whoever they pictured was replaced by a teenager who looked like a gawkier Harold Ramis, the reason I was called Egon for an entire week at a National Youth Leadership Conference in Washington, D.C., then whatever the fantasy was going to be for them was shattered, just sitting there broken on the ground, and we were dealing with the very real situation that a grown woman was flirting with a boy in a plywood box. I'd wave and say goodnight and head straight for my mom's car outside. Women, children, people don't like to be fooled. I learned this lesson then, and I learned it years later at a music video shoot in San Francisco. I was dressed in a very obvious cardboard robot costume. 
I was standing on the paddleboat dock near Stowe Lake in Golden Gate Park when a little girl walked up to me, punched me in the nuts, and said, those aren't robot parts, those are people parts. I had to deal with some of that same, you're not real and I'll prove it energy when running the bear. Teenagers really let me have it. They showed me through some very forcefully thrown quarters that they knew where I was and that this was all a ruse. Thwack! Ping! Thwack! That hollow plywood box was my Vietnam. I think some kids would go to the change machine before hitting them all expressly for the purpose of torturing me in that box. Like the flirtatious ladies, usually this happened just before closing time, when they knew that I had to come out of my foxhole sooner or later. Thankfully, they seemed to be sated when they saw me. Not as disappointed as the female fans, but maybe I was just too scrawny to make escalating the encounter worth it. My mother was sick during this period. She had gotten better, or at least her cancer had gone into remission for a little while. Her hair had almost grown back to its original length. Her weight fluctuated, but that only meant she got to spend more time at the layaway counter and in stores buying the same item in three different sizes. She left the tags on most everything, and if she ever ran out of money, we would just go return the stuff that didn't fit anymore. When she died just six years later, my father returned over $400 worth of items, tags still attached, never worn. Her end was awful, and I wasn't there for all of it, which is one of those things that I'm both happy to have been spared and guilty about not enduring. When she was coming out of the fog of anesthesia from her final surgery, an effort to fuse her lesion-covered spine and alleviate pain, she insisted that she had watched a performance I had just done. I wasn't going to argue with her, but I had been sitting in the waiting room straining to hear a television I didn't care about and watching my dad drift off in an uncomfortable chair the whole time. There's lots of performances that I wish she had seen, friends and partners I wish she'd met, things to have seen together. There's lots of just days when the air's perfect and crisp and the color of the leaves on the trees is just an unbelievable shade of red that I wish we could have shared. But I also think about all the many mall performances she did see. A few feet away from front row in that jewelry shop for seven, eight hours at a time. It was a weird thing, but a fun thing. And she knew I would be well suited to it. And I was. I could make people of all sorts laugh. I could also get her to laugh. She'd stand outside the store and watch when things got slow, and I could see her whole face smile all the way across the hall. When I picture her now, that smile is what I always see first. It was fun to be a thing inside another thing that Christmas. I hope your week is full of wonderful things inside other things, that the objects around you are full and humming with little echoes of your existence and your loved one's existence, and that they're bouncing little rainbows off your ceilings and walls. And the next time you see a small round hole or a glass door knob, Take a minute and peer through it, or give it a wave, careful not to disturb the occupants within. That's all for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks to Lindsay Broad and Sean Bradley for doing such wonderful jobs as May and O'Donis. Now, the script for that was generated by the most mysterious and potentially life-on-earth-ending thing inside another thing I could think of, AI. I feel a little hinky about that. But also, wow! 
why not see what's inside that thing and see what it can do? If ever there was something we need to maybe look a little more closely at but don't want to, it's that. So I guess thanks, ChatGPT, for writing an episode of 1950s radio faster than I could. And whether you're a computer plotting to one day take us all down or just a person trying to get through the holidays, I hope you'll remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just a hit. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website design by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the deep night. <laughs>